Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the New Books uh, Network podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Gagne. And today today I'm talking to a whole bunch of people about a new anthology that just came out with Vanderbilt University Press called Sex in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, Today we're going to be talking to the two editors of the collection, Angel Foster and Lisa Wynn, as well as one of the contributors, Mina Ibrahim. Um, I am also a contributor to this text, so I'm really excited to be having this conversation today. Um, but let's not talk about me. <laughs> let's just keep it to the, the guests. So just uh, by way of introduction, um, Angel M. Foster is professor uh, in the Faculty of Health Sciences and the 2011 to 2016 in Dow Chair in Women's Health Research at the University of Ottawa. She's also the co-founder of Cambridge Reproductive Health Con- uh, Consultants. Um, Lisa Wynn, who publishes under the name L.L. Wynn, is a professor of anthropology in the School of Social Sciences at Macquarie University in Sydney and previous president of the Australian Anthropological Society. She's also currently an associate editor uh, of the journal American Ethnologist. And Mina Ibrahim recently completed his PhD at the University of Gießen in Germany and is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Marburg, a research affiliate at Zentrum Moderner Orient in Berlin. He's also the project coordinator of the MENA Prison Forum and the founding director of Shubra's Archive for History and Social Research. Welcome all. Uh, I'm really happy to have you all here today and to be talking about this new collection that's coming out that's several years in the making. I'm really excited for this collection. I've got I've already got one of the readings on my anthropology of gender class for this semester. So I'm really excited. Which one is that? Um, oh, my God. Now I put uh, you on the spot. Just tell us the general. You don't need to know the exact title. Just tell us the general topic. Um, it's the one about um, women in Iran and their use of sex oh, yeah. toys and pleasures and piety. Oh, yeah, um, that's a great one. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a really good chapter. Um, so let's just begin. We're going to, um, you know, I have a couple of questions sort of first contextualizing the book and sort of asking about um the overall frame of the book that you guys established as editors. And then I have some particular questions about your individual contributions. Um, And so I just want to start with contextualizing the book. Um, And so this book is a sort of a sequel to a book that you guys published or you edited a few years ago called Abortion Pills, Test Tube Babies and Sex Toys, Emerging Sexual and Reproductive Health Technologies in the Middle East and North Africa, also with Vanderbilt University Press. Um, And in the introduction, you sort of talk about how um, that book sort of paved the way um, for this book. And so I'm hoping that... um, you could tell me a little bit about how writing, how the writing and the reception of that book paved the way to new questions and new lines of inquiry that led to this book. And this is for Angel, yeah. Sure. Well, first, Matthew, thank you so much for putting together this podcast. It's really a delight to be able to talk about this new book. Lisa and I have been working together for a really long time. At this point, I think it's going on two decades. Um, And in 2017, Vanderbilt University Press published Abortion Pills, Test Tube Babies, and Sex Toys. And that book was really a labor of love that had taken many years to get together. The book focused on specific reproductive health technologies in the Middle East and North Africa. And it was structured such that each chapter focused on a technology and a particular country. And we divided that book into three sections. We had a section on uh, contraception and abortion technologies. We had a section on pregnancy-related technologies. And then there was a a section that was on sexual health and sexuality technologies. And that section included 
for example, a chapter on sex toys in Morocco and a chapter on the HPV vaccine in Lebanon, a chapter on hemenoplasty in Iran and Viagra in Egypt and gender transformation practices in Turkey. And once the book was released and we started to get reviews of the book, we started to you know, tour a little bit about the book and, and share information about the chapters, it was very clear that the sex part was the thing that people were most interested in. People were fascinated by the chapters that were included. They were really excited to learn more about um, how technologies and sex uh, were intertwined. I think those chapters really broke down or um, moved away from some of the preconceived notions or stereotypes that sometimes readers have about uh, sex in the Middle East. And that's really what spurred us to take on this as a dedicated project. I'll also say that one of the things that came up in the reviews that both Lisa and I found really compelling was a critique of the book that said that we really, that that what was missing and what would be valued was to be, um, was to have a book that explored um, a greater range of sexual behaviors and identities. And so when we approached this book, we really leaned into that critique uh, and tried to ensure that the book was more reflective of the full range of experiences. Let's turn toward then that topic of sex, because um, this is something that is, you know, part of my research agenda. Um, and I know that uh, Lisa's published, you know, she has a monograph from 2018 that sort of also talks about this. And you guys are talking about it in your in the introduction, which is thinking anthropologically about how to study sex. Right. And how to um contextualize how to study it, but also how to contextualize it in a region like the Middle East and North Africa. Um, And so, you know, one of the first questions that came to mind, uh, or one of the first topics that you really um, try and get to is the politics of studying sex um, from that region and about that region. So can you tell me a little bit about how in the introduction there, you guys sort of connect the book to a genealogy of writing about sex and sexuality in the Middle East and North Africa? Um, Yeah, Yeah, no, it's a good question, Matthew. I mean, both Angel and I are anthropologists. Angel is additionally, uh, she works in public health and she's a physician. But as anthropologists, you know, both of us are hyper aware of the history of anthropology writing about the sex of exotic others. So if you look at historically, like Margaret Mead was one of the most famous anthropologists, and she she came to fame because she was writing her book, Coming of Age in Samoa, Samoa, where she was talking about um, you know, young people, young adolescents, and and their pursuit of sexuality outside of marriage. And she was really doing that to use this other society as a kind of a critique of her own society. She was bisexual and, uh, and she was writing in an era where the sexuality was fairly repressed and heteronormative and uh, within marriage. And she just saw what was happening in this other society as being so much healthier for the individuals involved and for society in general. And so she's part of this long legacy of writing about sex. But when it comes to the Middle East, it's quite different because for some reason, you know, the Western world has always been super fascinated and titillated, you know, by, by the idea of sex in the Middle East, you know, uh, there's this long history of colonial writing about harems and, uh, veiled women. And, and and so we were, we were super aware of that and we wanted to unsettle that, but at the same time, we had to stay aware that, that that was part of what would generate the audience for our book, you know? So it's a, it's a strange bind to be in. On the one hand, you want to disrupt those colonial fantasies about the other, about their, their weird and exotic sexual practices. And by the way, if you look at the history of Western writing about sexuality in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, it kind of plays this role of the reverse of whatever, the, the writer's sexuality or in their own society is like. So at a time when Western sexuality was, was fairly repressed and heteronormative, there was a lot of writing about like the Middle East as if it was this place where a lot of weird stuff was happening. You know, the, the, 
the the sultan in his harem with a whole bunch of concubines just having like, you know, I guess people imagined wild orgies or something. And then as Western sexuality became a little more open in the 70s and, and so on, then all of a sudden the depictions of the Middle East flipped to become the opposite. And now it was the land of the sexually repressed, you know. Um, so that's really interesting. That tells you something. That tells you that we're not just writing about the sexuality of others. We're always writing about the sexuality of others with respect to ourselves or as a foil for thinking about sexuality in our own society. So Angel and I were really aware of that. And we found it a tricky position to be in. Um, and we decided that the only way to really deal with it was by, you know, dealing with it head on by saying, yes, we, we know that there's this history and here's how we're going to try to get past it. But on some level, we can never get past it because we know that that Western imagination and fantasy of Arabs, for example, you know, having lascivious sex in, in, in the harem, that's always going to be in the background of of what any reader is thinking about as they read this. And hopefully the the many chapters in the book will unsettle that a little. Mm. Yeah, it's true. And you, you know, you really do rely a lot on, um, uh, on, you know, Saeed's Orientalism and intellectual traditions around those topics, which relates to that idea of the very, that, that particular relationship between, you know, Europe and Western culture and the Middle East as this sort of like, um, you know, Europe used the Middle East as a mirror of its own self, right? As a way of defining itself through these depictions of the region, which is very different from its relationship to other regions in the world. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. That's such a distinct part of um, the implications of anthropological studies of sex in Mina, as opposed to in other parts of the world, like you say, because even Malinowski had his his text, right, where he just documented the sexual practices of that society, um, just as a way of, of which of, he called the savages, right, the sexual lives of savages, exactly. And it's just like it's pure documentation. Uh, as a way that's just all about that othering. And so I'm curious for, you know, this is a question for Angel. I mean, how does the this book situate itself within that tension? Because like Lisa pointed out, it's hard to get away, like, it's hard to get away. And in the, in the introduction, you point out the fact that, like, as writers in this book, we're all participating in that legacy, and it's hard for us to get away from that legacy but it's also important that we try to get away from that legacy or we try to sort of interrupt it or intervene in some way. And so I'm curious how you guys sort of locate the text um, within it. It's a great question. And it's, it's a struggle and it's an, uh, and it's an ongoing effort. I think that one of the things we really tried to do um, and, you know, part of this was having just some wonderful contributing authors who were doing really fascinating work, but then working with them individually to really make sure that the claims that are being made and the kinds of things that are being said are not overly generalizing, that they're very located in the specific ethnographic work that someone's doing, that positionalities and reflexive practices around positionality are infused within these chapters. And I think that is a first step in trying to address this, really locating the author. And we have authors who are from the communities that they're writing about. We have authors who are deeply embedded with the communities that they're writing about. And we have authors who are quite distant in some ways from the communities that they're writing about. And all of those perspectives can be valuable and rich. I think it's important, though, that people own what those perspectives are. And so I think we really tried to work across chapters to ensure that that was, was part of it. I think the other thing, and, and I will say, I, I, I think this is true uh, in general about the way that sex is written about in academia. I think this is especially true in uh, public health, although we do sometimes see this in anthropology as well. Um, we don't talk about the pleasure and the fun and that kind of element of sex, the positive elements of sex. So often the focus in academia is either very dry and in a very public health kind of domain, 
or it's about the horrors of sex or the risks of sex or the dangers or it's contextualized around violence. And I think one of the things that we really try to bring forward in this volume is some of the things that are fun and pleasurable and that we see as being very human, cross-cultural, not unique uh, necessarily to the MENA region, but not something that is often the focus of discussions of sex and sexuality within the region. So that was another, I think, aim for us. Yeah, and I'll just add, I, I remember one of the early reviewers of the text saying, well, you know, this is all this is all good, but what about sexual violence? You know, and, and we felt like, yes, I mean, that's a reality of people's sexual lives around the world, but it's also a big part of the stereotypes that many people have of the region. And we just didn't want to go there. And like Angel said, we wanted to write about sex as pleasure, sex as joy. So, so there are some hard stories in there. You know, it's not all like happiness and joy and fun and pleasure. I mean, there's also stigma and shame and, you know, but but we really wanted to try to find that balance and look at people, you know, actually enjoying sex and enjoying their lives and other people and their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, so now the book itself is divided into three sections that um, hu- very humorously, I think, mirror, and you guys point this out, this isn't my observation, but sort of mirror um, contemporary social media relationship categories, right? Can you describe the narrative sections and the sort of idea behind the story you're trying to tell through the sort of sections of them? Sure. So we divide the the book into three sections Uh, single in dating, uh, engaged and married, and it's complicated. And we do that for a couple of reasons. I I think first is just a general um, compulsion among academics to categorize and organize things in ways that we can then uh, guide a reader to making connections between chapters and ideas. So that's certainly, that's certainly part of the, of the, the trifecta that we've included. Um, but we really did want to both acknowledge the, the way that we think about different kinds of relationships and how that gets categorized often on social media. But also then um, one of the themes I think that comes out in many of the chapters of the book is the role that information technologies, the way that social media, the way that new media influences people's um, engagement around sex, whether that's how people meet sexual partners or prospective partners or how people find out information about where it is that they can go in order to have um, in order to engage in sex in ways that are safe and socially protective or how it is that people navigate health systems and needs that are around um, that that are adjacent to or around the around having sex and so in in organizing the book in that way we wanted to highlight that one of the kind of transcendent themes of the book is the way that uh, the internet, information technologies, and so- social media uh, is playing in a con- in the contemporary Middle East. And that um, actually it's contemporary everywhere, right? Like, yeah. it's not unique to the Middle East. And that connects up to your chapter, Matthew, which I know you said you weren't going to talk about, but maybe you should say something. I mean, it's a great chapter, and it's all about you know, hooking up and using dating apps, right? I mean, one thing, I will say that one thing that I've struggled sort of more broadly in my research and particularly writing it is that relationship between the particularity and the sort of the universality of intimate life and sex and desire and pleasure and dating and, you know, in the digital age. And, and, you know, it it relates to um, what you were saying, Lisa, about imaginaries that we have around the region. So often when when I wanted to talk about dating apps, Um, I wanted to establish sort of like a universal theory of dating apps through, you know, the particularity of men in Beirut. But people were always like, no, 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 what what is it about Beirut? It was always that story of like, no, 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 make it about Beirut, not about the apps, whereas I sort of often wanted to make it about the apps. Because at the end of the day, it's that line where I can say this is about Beirut and this is just about the apps globally is very, very blurred. Um, yeah, you know, I think, yeah, well, I was going to say so many of us are writing 
in the tradition and in the legacy of Leila Abu Lughod, who who published this really influential um, chapter uh, a few decades ago called Writing Against Culture, right? Where she basically said, you know, what anthropologists need to do is not say, you know, this is the culture of Lebanon. This is the culture of Beirut, you know, but instead to focus on the particularities of people's lives in a way that we could then understand how, sure, there are cultural norms, but there are also people who are constantly going against them or working within them or doing interesting idiosyncratic things that actually reveal how culture works, but also how culture changes. And so it's a balance, right? Because there are things that apps do, you know, broadly speaking, outside of culture, they, they, you know, technological configurations make people interact in particular ways. But then, I mean, they, yeah, the, the thing with apps is that at the end of the day, they work the same anywhere. And so the effect they're having globally is actually one of simil- similitude, right? Like so often queer men in Beirut, men around the world, at least in my you know, research realm, they can go anywhere now and just find sex within 10 minutes because the idioms, the the practices, the ways of communicating, they're all becoming similar as opposed to different. Of course, there's, you know, there's local variety in terms of the kinds of words that people use, the, the meaning behind those words, the, the, you know, the, the, the speed at which they hook up, the, the anonymity that they might want to retain, you know, in Beirut, discretion is higher than in Toronto, but men in Toronto are still discreet, right? Like, so this idea that discretion is a characteristic of a Middle Eastern city uh, is, is it doesn't hold true as much, you know, it, it's hard to make that analysis because at the end of the day, you could travel to any city uh, and open grinder and find people who are withholding information because they're trying to be discreet. Um, you know, so, so it's such a fine line in terms of where culture is really playing a role in the, the production of the localized meaning versus the universality um, and this goes into that category. For me, the way I think about it is how, at, le- at least when it comes to talking about queerness and, and the digital age, how that category of the Middle East or of the, you know, the Lebanese queer man gets produced against assumptions about the violence and and problems of being queer in Lebanon, because those are undeniable, Um that, that the kinds of political limitations and violences and oppressions that exist there certainly, you know, shape how they use the, the technologies. Um, yeah. And, and so how it reifies, uh, you know, I always just had people like when I would tell people, oh, I study these apps in the Middle East, they're like, aren't you afraid? Aren't you? And, it's, you know, there, there's all these sort of reifications of those categories and the assumptions that come with them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the same for me doing my research, you know, talking to to people who are basically sex workers, right? Although they don't think of themselves necessarily in that way. And everybody's always shocked, like, what? You know, how can you do that? How are they not getting arrested? And, and I just have to explain, people are really, and people's lives are really complicated and interesting and nuanced. And people find ways in and around the normative categories that that try to constrain them to do really interesting things with their lives. I'll also just to, to piggyback on, on something that Lisa just said, I'll also just say that one of the things that we really wanted to try to do with this volume overall is problematize this idea of binaries. Binaries where something is licit or illicit, where something is, you know, acceptable or unacceptable. Binaries around gender identity, binaries around sexual orientation, binaries around, um, again, binaries around the way that we construct what is and isn't permissible. And really talking about how something that's using terms that come up a lot, what's socially normative versus what's non-normative and how those lines are really blurry. And I think that's one of the things that we really, um, that's really a strength of this book is that it complicates a lot of those, um, those bright lines and suggests actually they're really not that bright. And what this, what this means is very much dependent on context. And as Lisa mentioned, people's lives are complicated and interesting and multifaceted. Um, and I think it's there's a tension there, but it's one that I think we've also again tried to lean into and really explore. 
and they're not the stories aren't so different from stories that one might hear from other places and and in other contexts and stuff yeah yeah so um you know so who who should read the book who's your imagined audience Gee, why am I? Why do I find myself stumped when you ask that question? I mean, everybody, duh. Um, look, I mean, there's there's a lot of interest in this topic, in the topic of sex in the Middle East, in North Africa, and we saw that um, when that book came out, um, "Sex in the Citadel," right, which was um, a great, uh, more popular approach to the topic, and now. We're academics, so we're not writing this in a. We're not writing in a journalistic style for, um, you know, your everyday person on the street. But I think it's accessible to people who are willing to deal with our citational practices. You know, um, they're really engaging stories that people tell. I mean, and we asked our contributors, we said, tell stories, you know, tell us about people's lives. Don't just um, turn this into a theoretical essay. So it's really engaging. I think that people will do like you're doing, Matthew, and they'll assign a chapter or three, you know, in a class that they're teaching. I think people will pick it up just to, to read about the astonishing variety of sexualities and sexual practices and, and lives in the region. I don't know. What do you think, Angel? I agree. I mean, I think we, we very intentionally wanted the chapters to be relatively short. These are not super long chapters that take forever to navigate. We wanted them to be more accessible. I think that in, you know, for a number of different reasons, we really did ask uh, contributors to elevate the voices of their interlocutors to really try to tell people's stories and bring that out. I think that makes for very engaging reading. I expect that this kind of book would be particularly resonant with undergraduates who are in area studies or anthropology, even in public health, feminist and gender studies, in part because um, some of the things that are in this book are quite universal. And I think, you know, a North American undergraduate is likely going to relate to a number of the things in this book very viscerally and very directly in a way that might have been surprising to them had you said, I'm going to assign you a chapter on sex, you know, something about sex in the Middle East, um, to then read this and say, actually, I see very much things about myself, my own community, you know, my own experience in these works. And so I think that that... um, could be particularly valuable. Yeah, like the chapter that you wrote, you co-wrote, Angel, about hooking up in Jordan, you know? I mean, like, these things are really, yeah, it's not the just the exotic practices of the other, right? It's also, it's really connected to... And then I think there are some things that are really that are very specific to individual settings. And I think about, um, you know, the chapter that really looks at... Um, legal sex work in Tunisia that I think will be very surprising to a lot of people who don't know about that history of um, of the legalization of sex work in Tunisia and then what happened after the revolution. And I think I think things like that will um, will appeal to a number of different kinds of audiences. I will say that one of the things we very intentionally tried to do with the book is incorporate chapters from different parts of the region. Um, as someone who's very much a North Africanist, I did my doctoral and postdoctoral work in Tunisia. Um, often the Maghreb is excluded from collective works about the Middle East that tend to focus more on Egypt and the Levant. Um, we're really excited that this book really is about the Middle East and North Africa, including having contributions that are about Turkey, Iran, the Gulf, the Levant, Egypt, and then the Maghreb. And I think that's that's something that for folks in area studies, I think could be particularly valuable as well. Mm-hmm. Great. So let's uh, so let's move on to some a couple questions for each of you about your individual contributions. So the first is uh, Angel, and like you say, the chapter that she co-wrote, um, which, you know, like you say, it's a very narrative-driven, interesting, in, you know, insightful um, chapter about apps and casual sex among heterosexual women in Jordan. Um, can you tell me about the basic demographic culture shift that you're exploring here in the chapter? Yeah, 
so I mean, I think one of the things that we were trying to do with this chapter is to really look at how there's been a shift in changing sexual behavior, behaviors and marriage patterns around um, heterosexual women in Jordan. And we see this in other parts of the region as well. Uh, heterosexual women are spending more and longer and longer periods of their lives outside of marriage. They're getting married later. They're also engaging in a number of different um, activities and environments that um, where they're having more social interactions and opportunities for sexual relations than, you know, would have occurred decades prior in a very different kind of, uh, in, in, in a, in a very in a very different era. And again, that's not unique to Jordan. This is something we see all over the world. Um, but there's this often imagined idea that these changes aren't happening in the Middle East, that you're not seeing, you know, heterosexual single women having sex before marriage, and then instead, they're just celibate for a really long time, or, you know, we just don't talk about what might be happening. And, and so and so for this chapter, we really wanted to look at these kinds of competing um, desires, um, these competing uh, sort of se- both sexual and social desires, but then also competing issues on how to navigate family and community and sort of social expectations that m- perhaps are more conservative in some way than people's individual behaviors and how it is that they are finding space to hook up, have casual relationships, and then also navigate through health systems, for example, to be able to get care when the health system has been structure, structured over a very different model that really doesn't recognize that unmarried people have sex for pleasure. And so I think that chapter is probably one of the more public healthy chapters in the book, although it's very qualitative in its orientation. But um, but but I do think that is a chapter that's really trying to to ask readers to, you know, to recognize that the same kinds of shifts that we've seen in sexual behaviors in many other places of the world, including North America, are also occurring in the Middle East in very similar constructions. And technology plays an important role in that, both in how it is that people meet and how it is people navigate whatever systems they need access to. Yeah. So can you just, you know, for the sake of entertainment, can you give us some of those details that you talk about in the chapter, particularly around, you know, you talk a a little bit about how they, it's shifted the interaction that interactions, the way these women interact with men, or the kinds of new opportunities that women have created through these technologies. Yeah. So I'll start with the opportunities part, which is this can allow people, um, various kinds of dating apps and social media, uh, social media platforms can allow people to meet others who are like-minded, who are interested in pursuing a more casual or at least outside of marriage sexual relationship and do that with within some sort of, uh, some ways that are protected and figuring out that this is someone who might be imagined being able to figure out how to meet someone in ways that um, could, be, could be comfortable that allow people to interact and try one, try somebody on for size without, um, without feeling like there could be a lot of exposure in one's larger social environment. I think the other thing though, that we really documented here is that some of the things that women in Jordan were sharing with us about their experiences engaging on social media are the same things we've heard in other places. Um, we have a whole section on the unsolicited dick picture and what it means when, you know, people are engaging in these spaces and then suddenly getting pictures of genitalia that was surprising, unwelcome, upsetting, and trying to figure out what that means and how to navigate that. So on the one hand, these apps and this technology provides this sense of safety and being able and protectiveness of being able to pursue these kind of more casual sexual relationships. And on the other, there's, there's these exposures to things that are quite unsettling and figuring out how to navigate that. I think one of the things that we heard, which again, without wanting to, uh, all the things I said before, without wanting to make things too universal, but one of the things that I think we heard in this is that often people think they're the only person who's experiencing this. So when we're talking to women in Jordan and they're talking about the dick pic, scenario, it's often someone who's feeling like, what did I do to to bring this on? Because it must be about me. It must be a signal that I'm sending. And what do I need to do to deal with that? As opposed to saying, actually, this is something that's a much broader phenomenon. And it's about how people all over the world, and in this case, women in particular, and heterosexual cis women in particular, are navigating this, this use of social media and the internet. 
And so those are some of the things that kind of come out in this chapter. I do think this one might be one that undergrads in North America could potentially <laughs> could potentially resonate with them a little bit. Yeah, dick, dick pick is cultural universal. There's something I never thought I'd say, you know. That's it. I, I have a chapter, or not a, ch- a section of a chapter about the dick pick. But from a from a queer male perspective, it, it takes on a different kind of meaning. Absolutely, right? I, I think that's also really important to recognize. We are very specific about the population that we're talking about in terms of their reaction to this. Yeah. 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 Um, great. Thank you. Uh, okay. So Lisa, I have a couple questions about, um, partic- I'm in, cause you have two, you have a co-authored chapter and you have, um, a sole authored chapter. Uh, this is particularly about your sole author chapter about your work among women, um, doing what could be called sex work. But as you note in, in your work, there's cultural variations to this term and you know, you can't always, it can't always be applied to that same sort of Western idea of exchange for money and sex and goods and sex and this sort of stuff. Um, And so can you tell us a little bit about that chapter? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, these are people who I've known for like literally decades since I've been doing uh, research in, in Egypt and when I, you know, when I was first doing my research in Egypt and, and people would say, that's a prostitute. There's a prostitute. You know, I thought they were saying, oh, that's a sex worker. It took like, it literally took me years to realize that they weren't necessarily saying that's a sex worker. They're saying that's like somebody who we're, we're making a judgment about her sexuality basically. Right. And, um, and, and then I, I, eventually I came to realize, oh, there, you know, there's sex workers all around me in a way, I mean, that, that some of my friends were sex workers, but it's not such an easy, you know, bright identity to, to, well, it's not an identity that they take on. You know, these are people who have sex for money and they know that they're doing that. And, uh, and they say openly that they're doing that, but they don't see themselves as sex workers. I guess one of the reasons is that, you know, these are, these are people who, okay, I guess when we have a stereotype about, you know, the poor lower class prostitute, you know, so I'm, I'm using that old word, old stigmatizing word really deliberately, right? Like, so often there are these stories about, oh, she's doing it to survive, you know, uh, she was forced into that life. Well, okay, so on one level, some of these people are doing it to supplement their income and maybe even to survive, to, to survive well. But but they are also doing it because they like sex and they like men, you know. Um, and I found that really interesting. These, these are people who really warmly, humorously embrace their sexuality in different ways. And, you know, I, I focus the chapter around a couple of women who are, um, who know each other. And one of them is you know, she, she loves sex and she'll have sex with a lot of men to support herself and her daughters. Uh, her, you know, ex-husband's a total flake, but she's also, um, periodically getting married to people, you know, and there's this weird in-between category of marriage that we've got somebody else in the, in the volume, Rani Asylum. She also writes about that. Um, I call it, you know, uh, paramarital formations, you know, where you're sort of married, sort of not, you're, you're married, but it's not officially registered. People move in and out of this category of marriage really easily. So she's always getting married to people in part because it, it provides a kind of a cover for the, for the sex work she's doing. It prevents her from being arrested. Um, in part because she wants to do the right thing, but in part because she's always hoping that one of these marriages will stick and she'll find like the good man who wants to, you know, stay devoted to her and support her and her family. And then, you know, that, that falls apart eventually. Um, So it's just this really interesting ambiguity. Uh, You know, is she a sex worker? Does she want to be married? She wants all of that. And then there's another person who really just doesn't, uh, she, she won't have sex for money. She'll have sex because she loves somebody or because she wants the pleasure, you know, but then sometimes she, she, she kind of has to, um, have sex because she's, 
financially desperate. So, so I just explore all of those nuances um, in these people who are really fun and engaging. And God, I mean, they're just, they're a hoot to listen to. They just, they own their sexuality in ways that are just really fun and lovely and joyful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and can, you know, another element of that that came to my head was, and maybe I'm, this is my brain sort of bleeding in with your 2018 book, um, Love, Sex, Desire in, in Modern Egypt. But you also talk about how money and that exchange is also part of legitimizing relationships, right? And how, um, as opposed to something like the West, where we were, you know, Vivian Zeilizer, who's work is influential in talking about how money and intimacy sort of were separate. And the minute money comes in, that sort of has an effect of delegitimizing intimacy. Whereas in Egypt, you make a case across your work to look at how that exchange is part of the, the legitimizing of that relationship. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, Zelazar is saying, she's basically saying we have this ideology that money and love don't go together, right? We've got like, money can't buy me love. And we've got all of these cultural sayings that say that they're separate. But sellers are actually, she looks at um, the, you know, legal histories in the United States. And she says, actually, you know, even though this is the ideology, the reality is that these are closely intertwined. Whereas what I find interesting in Egypt is that, um, you know, people people will readily accept that these things go together, that that's a way that you show love for your partner is you buy them stuff, you know, you support them. Um, and, and people aren't afraid to, to own that. And, and so there's, you know, it happened over and over again that I would meet people who would say, Oh yeah. Um, he, you know, in, in a heterosexual pairing. Oh, he, he doesn't support her. He doesn't pay for this. He doesn't pay for that. Therefore he doesn't really love her. You know, it was seen as proof that he didn't really love her. And I guess one of the things I love, this isn't from our current edited volume, but from my previous book, since you mentioned it is, you know, a story about like a couple who, yeah, that's what everybody said. Like he doesn't really love her. He doesn't get jealous. He he's not paying for this or that. She was a really independent woman who was pursuing a degree in law. Well, now they're happily married. So, you know, um, and have been for a long time. So clearly the stories that people think that they're telling about other people aren't always true. You know, there's, there's all kinds of interesting subtleties go going on. But what's interesting there is that there's that ideology that yeah, money and love, these things all go together. And that that is strange for us, even if they really go together in our own uh, society and culture, we at least have this ideology that they don't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, great. So Mina, thank you for waiting in the wings. Um, I am really happy you could join us. I really was captivated by the story you were telling in your chapter. Um, You wrote about a particular interlocutor, which is a a style of writing that I really enjoy and goes along with the the vibe of the book. Um, And you wrote about her in a way that felt like I was reading this fascinating, complex, and also sympathetic character in a novel. It was really quite fun to read. Um, And so, you know, can you tell us a little bit about the context of your piece, um, the person whose journal you were reading, sort of how you came about finding this person and and what brought you toward wanting to analyze um, her journal as a sort of uh, source of data. Yeah, thanks a lot, Matthew, for your your question. Um, And thanks for having me today. Um, the, 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 the story that I'm writing in the chapter actually is uh, is part of my doctoral fieldwork, uh, doctoral dissertation work, uh, where I trace uh, limits of victimhood and uh, activism narratives among Coptic Christians in Egypt. So my main research question of, of my dissertation, of my research in general, like when do Copts as, a, as members of a religious minority, or so they are usually described, cannot be called or cannot call themselves uh, uh, neither victims nor activists, right? So, so because like, especially following the 2011 uprisings, you know, uh, m- many scholars tried to, even before a bit of the 2011 uprisings, many scholars tried to 
take cops out of the victimhood, uh, you know, uh, sphere and put them into being activists through their rituals, uh, traditions, theologies, miracles, saints, apparitions. Uh, so they are not just victims of, you know, church bombings or uh, or like massacres, as also it's, they are still happening, but at the same time, they have their own, uh, you know, agencies and they have their own, you know, activist stories to tell. But then when I started my, my, my dissertation, I actually was, of course, you know, leaning towards the activist narrative more than the victimhood narrative as also a member of the 2011 uprisings generation. But then at some point I have been, uh, I have encountered a lot of uh, incidents and stories uh, where uh, the, the, like the equation uh, includes another uh, concept actually, which is which I call in my work the misfits. So the misfits of the the activism and of the victim people who who like uh, are are members of the community. They they are they they are uh, sometimes they are good believers. Uh, sometimes they are actually witnessing miracles. Sometimes they are witnessing sense apparitions. Sometimes they join uh, streets protests to uh, uh, like challenge their marginalization in the country. But at the same time, the same people, there are practices in this, their lives that cannot, you know, uh, be part of these uh, kind of activist narratives or activist settings, if you want. So, uh, like the girl I'm, I'm talking about in the in the in in the chapter, uh, she's like, I mean, her 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 childhood and uh, her like upbringing is similar to many Coptic Christians. But then her uh, life took uh, took different routes uh, because of economic reasons, because also of romantic, you know, reasons. Because of her 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 heart was broken as well due to a failed uh, romantic relationship. And then she tells us through her uh, work or through her like uh, what she's doing for work, which is sex work. Actually, she's telling us about careers and sexualities that do not fit into. Uh, how cops should act either as victims or as uh, activists. Yeah. Like I said, in the in, in the piece, your your the data you're using is sort of interviews with her, but also her her journal. You you just sort of asked her to to be able to access her journal, right? To sort of analyze a bit about the story she was telling in her journal about her her sort of sex life and her, you know, her, the, the sort of biography that she paints through the journal, it's one going all the way down to back to adolescent sexual exploration, heartbreak, like you say, um, encounters with the church and with morality and stuff. Um, with the church. Um, and so can you tell me a little bit about how, how you approached her journal um, and how it enabled you to think about these issues that you're raising? Yeah, so that, that actually was the issue with the journal, you know, like, um, so the girl is a church servant, right? She's a lay church servant, uh, which is called in Arabic khadima in the church. Um, and as a khadima, which is also, I, I, me myself, I used to be a khadim, which is the, you know, the masculine derivative of the khadima, which is a church layman uh, servant. We actually have in the church what is called the Sunday school uh, preparation notebooks, if you want. So we, we uh, uh, through these notebooks, we prepare our lessons for the kids, right? So she already actually... Uh, at the end of each, you know, lesson. So at the lesson, you of course, of course, you are, you know, uh, controlled by the the syllabus of the church, you know. But at the end of each uh, lesson, there is this section where you add your own, if you want, spiritual meditation, you know, like a reflection of the story. So, for example, the story of the Samaritan woman, you know, that I mentioned in the chapter, and it's the title of the chapter actually. Is very famous and it's every year it's taught to kids, you know, at the Sunday schools. And then by the end of each Sunday school preparation notebook, there is this spiritual meditation. But she actually, the the the, the girl I'm talking with in the chapter, and not only her, actually many many of our members of our generation, we actually try to have our own diaries or our own, if you want, notebooks, 
where we can record what we cannot say in the Sunday school preparation notebooks. It's a wonderful chapter. I encourage you to. It really is. You know, I was telling, um, you know, my co-author for the other chapter that I wrote, uh, she's, she's Saudi, Safa Hassanain. I was telling her about Mina's chapter and she was like, wow, that sounds like the plot line of an independent film. I mean, it really is. It's just, it's, um, it's really unconventional, isn't it, Matthew? I mean, that's, that's part of what attracted you to it, I think, right? It's just, it unsettles our ideas about what an academic book chapter is about. He also just very deftly, um, very deftly writes weaves between the intimate and the sort of the religious, right? The dogmatic, the, those encounters. And like, I'm not, I'm not a scholar of religion. And so I didn't always, I, I wasn't always sure exactly the larger point that he was making because of the, the connection to the Coptic church and stuff. But I, I just, I, it was such a delight to read it, the way he, he writes it. I'll, I'll also just share, at least Lisa and, and Matthew have both shared some of their comments on it. Um, so my stepfather is Egypt, Egyptian and is Copt. And I talked to him about your chapter and he is riveted by this. Um, this is obviously, the, the book is just getting released. So we haven't gotten feedback from, you know, really anybody other than the authors, the editors, the people who have done the reviews and like a small number of family members. But but one of the things that I think his reflections were to the to the chapter, and I'm curious about, about your reaction to this. I'm also curious about how this will get uh, received when the book is released, is that how, how it is so different from the way that cops are typically portrayed, whether it's in academic or in media circles, that there's this richness to this chapter and this complexity. And I know you talked about the sort of victim activist divide and how this fits in a very different place. But I think also there's not a whole lot of discussion about Coptic sexuality either that we see in certainly in academic uh, literature, but I, I think that's even broader and it, that really resonated with him. And so um, when I told him I was doing this podcast and you were on it, he wanted me to express his um, real delight that, that this chapter is in the book. But you might pick up on what Angel was saying about the representation of cops. I mean, I think that's what's really interesting about your chapter is you say, here's this group of people. I mean, this speaks to the themes of the overall book, too. Here's this group of people who they've got their own lives um, and dramas and dilemmas. But at the same time, they're always aware of how other people are imagining their lives and dramas and dilemmas. Oh, my God, we just lost Mina again. He just... We just lost his connection anyway. So I, I think that that's part of how his chapter interestingly connects up to the rest of the book is not just that we're looking at these particular practices, lives, experiences, but also their, the representation of them, this kind of meta level. I think that's right. I, I will also just say that I think that one of the other things that kind of comes throughout the book overall, and in some chapters in particular, is sort of the politics of the intimate. And so some of that is around the representation, and some of it is also around, you know, the state and the relationship between the state and intimate personal behaviors. And I think when we talk about the Coptic community in Egypt, this, this, uh, I think that Mina does a very good job of sort of recognizing the role that the state is also playing and the politics are actually also playing in the overarching story of this individual woman. Yeah. So just for the readers, I'll say, you know, this individual woman, so she's a woman who sins. She recognizes, she, that's how she defines herself. She's somebody who has sinned. So she defines herself as like the Samaritan woman in the Bible. Right. And, and then she's looking around at her community and she's saying, you know, Jesus forgave the Samaritan woman. Why can't you forgive me? Why are you excluding me from your community? And so it's really poignant you know, she's, she's dealing with stigma and what it means to be ostracized by your own community in in part because uh, of how they judge you. And in part, because you're this figure in a broader um, realm of social politics of what it means to be a copt in a Muslim majority country. And, And so there's the state that Angel's talking about too, you know, it's really a complex interweaving of issues that figure into a single woman's sexuality that that you do so well Mina and welcome back <laughs> we lost you again <laughs> 
Can you hear us? Oh, no, <laughs> he's still not here. He's not totally with us. I think we should just give up on Mina's internet connection, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, my gosh, poor thing. I, I will also say it's it's always hard to know when a book is released what reviewers are going to pick up on. Um, but I suspect strongly that Mina's chapter is going to be one of the things that... Um, that when the book gets reviewed, people are going to focus on both because of the overarching content. But again, I think it is just such a different way of engaging with an interlocutor and the kind of data that he using someone else's journal as this way of bringing forth a story is not something we see very often. So I think there's actually a really, a really fascinating kind of methodologic contribution as well. Uh, So I, I would predict that that's the, that's the chapter that when this book gets reviewed, uh, reviewers are going to focus on. I could be totally wrong, but you know, I'll, I'll throw that out there if I had to wager money. You know, who do you think should read this book, but likely won't? <laughs> oh, geez, that's a hard question. Political <laughs> yeah. uh, pundits, maybe. My husband, who never reads <laughs> any of the academic <laughs> stuff I write. <laughs> I could tell like terrible stories about him. He'd never know. <laughs> I think about, you know, going back to our conversation about um, uh, about the introduction and the frame and what the text is trying to do. I think that there's tons of people, you know, uh, people who make policy, people who make um, decisions about governing the Middle East, about um, reproductive care, about health care, about, you know, uh, global activists. Um, although they might they might read the book. It's, you know, it's the, the pundits and the, the politicians who really need a nuanced understanding of sexuality in, in the MENA that probably won't read it in my, you know. Anyway, um, Mina, welcome back. Do you want to have the final, uh, you know, do you want to sort of have a final say about your text and, and your approach to it and, you know, what you think the significant contributions are? No, thanks. I'm, I'm sorry again for this. And, and just to, to answer Angel's, uh, I, I don't know if you hear me, but I just to, un- to answer Angel's uh, uh note i i barely heard it actually uh yes it's about actually the representation that's the the, the... can you hear me yeah uh, just the, the the representation issue because that's the thing about the whole that's the whole uh, the whole point about what i was writing in the chapter actually that that the, the these yeah, I mean, this figure that i'm writing about is not only a misrepresentation of the of the community uh, no, actually, but, but she is actually refuted, actually to be uh, even evaluated as either a representative or a misrepresentative of the community. So that's also something important that she is. She is actually uh, people like her actually are not only refuted by the community within the community, but also when it also are rejected or are kind of negated also in what is called between brackets critical academic studies, and also in critical think tanks as well that uh, investigate uh, the the Coptic what what's called Coptic rights or minority rights so women like her or girls like her are not even considered as people who can speak you know uh, not only on behalf of the Coptic community but also on behalf of even of uh, uh, you know uh, girls in her age or even members who even have the same uh, lives uh, within the community, uh, Coptic community in particular, and Egypt in general, as well with respect to these victimhood and activist narratives, as I mentioned. Anyway, I, you know, that's all my questions. If anyone has any sort of final words to say, uh, I'm really excited for the release of the text in what two or three days. I think it's going to be officially available. Um, yeah, does anyone want to have the final word? I don't know that it needs to be final. I'll, I'm certainly happy for, for Lisa to, to give final word on the book, but I would just want to say one thing about that what's this project has spurred on kind of the next project. And one of the things that really came out of this project was um, a kind of a different way of thinking about field work, especially, especially sort of deep ethnographic work. And one of the things that we found, you know, we talked about this in the context of Mina's chapter, but also some of the other chapters where, yes, some of that was about sort of classic anthropological ethnographic methods, but we're seeing much more engagement with social media, interacting over social media, doing virtual interviews, things like that being 
engage with communities in very different ways. So I think one of the, I think the next project that, that Lisa and I are excited about is really thinking about a book about doing field work in the Middle East and North Africa that really starts to explore kind of field work in a more contemporary era. And again, really recognizes that field work means very different things depending on someone's relationship with the community that they're working in. And so field work for someone is about living in their own community and what it means to study one's own community and oneself. But that can also mean somebody who's embedded or in a period, in a place for a shorter period of time and, and really trying to bring that together. In my experience, and I say this now as a, as a professor with graduate students, I feel like some of the uh, sort of field work literature out there is a little dated and doesn't recognize, I would say, especially in anthropology, some of um, the newer ways that people are engaging with interlocutors. So th this project has really inspired us to look at that more formally. Great. Yeah. And I'll say, you know, one of the things people are always asking me is, oh, my God, how did you get to do that research? Um, and so that's something that we can address, you know, these complicated ways that people embed themselves into a community and find a legitimate role to be anthropologists. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it'll be yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just I agree. to add, add very quick thing about this, about also how do you do this research? Because I, I think, uh, as also Lisa mentioned, I think at the beginning or hinted at, uh, yeah, I, as a researcher, I learned from the people in the, in the, during my field work how to do this research, like through their, how they are maneuvering, you know, their, their, uh, banned or negated sexualities or, or sexual lives I actually learned I actually learned from them how to do it how to do the research how to write about it you know so it's very interesting that really developing these uh, uh, you know ethnographic if you want tactics you know from the people and actually that even can uh, uh, we, th these tactics actually should expand even the ethical considerations or limited ex ethical considerations that we are faced with in our Western universities. So really, I learned a lot from my interlocutors about their tactics and how to apply them actually while writing and while doing my research. Wonderful. Well, thanks everyone for uh, conversing with me today. Thank you so much for having us, Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. <laughs>